0: Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McKeown. And today with us, we welcome ESPN's Jeremy Schaap. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Liam, it's my pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course, it's an honor and a privilege, as always, to host anybody from the Worldwide Leader on this here podcast. And Jeremy, as is the usual method of um, going through things on the Press Pass podcast, I'm just going to start it off with a pretty easy, simple question. You've been in this industry for a very long time, but I'm going to have you look back a little further. When was the first time that you realized this was the industry you wanted to be in? Obviously, it's a family business with your dad and all that. But I mean, if you can remember, if there was ever a moment where you decided this is really what I wanted to do, share it with us.
1: I don't know if there's a, I can't pinpoint a Eureka moment, uh, you know, a light bulb moment where I said, this was what I wanted to do. I think it was building to that throughout my uh, misspent youth. Um, you know what? I, I mean, my father obviously was in the industry. He was one of the biggest guys in the industry, um, uh, respected and successful. And he took me everywhere. And, you know, we went to all the games and people came to him, the biggest stars in sports, you know, were at our apartment, you know, for dinner, hanging out, you know, Reggie Jackson or Muhammad Ali or Will Chamberlain, you know, when I came out to say goodnight, um, uh, to go to bed, you know, those guys would be in the living room. And, and so to grow up in that atmosphere, um, I, I think basically like, how could you have chosen anything else, right? I mean, like, why are there so many second and third generation people in the industry? Because uh, it's fun and it's exciting. And there was this incredible entree. And, and, and my father, you know, uh, in addition to being, um, you know, close with a lot of these famous athletes, you know, he was well-known himself. And I saw how people responded to him. A- and it was uh, it was incredible. Um, Um, I was incredibly fortunate as a kid to be exposed to this, to see him do his work and, and, you know, he worked very hard. He was kind of one of those people, the business who was known as a workaholic Mm -hmm. and, 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 but he loved it and was passionate about it. And, um, and it certainly, I think, um, was passed on to me. And, you know, and he said, you know, when you love what you do, you know, you never work a day in your life. And I really felt that to be the case. And and look, there were different times um, when I was younger before I got out of school where I thought, well, maybe I want to be on the print side or maybe I want to be on the news side. And um, kind of sorting that out took a little time. But I think the idea of being in the media, being part of this larger industry. Mm-hmm. whether it was news or sports, whether it was TV or newspapers or magazines. Um, that was it. And, 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 and again, you know, going back to my father, he got to do all those things. So, you know, it, it didn't feel like you had to necessarily choose one or the other. And, and um, you know, and I, I watched him do it, you know, and he, he took me to the office. I, I spent most of my weekends at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. He was at NBC when I was a little kid. And he worked on uh, at WNBC, the local station doing the sports. Um, at one point, I think the two, the two guys were him and Marv Albert, you know, like they split up the three shows, daily shows. And, and then he started doing the network stuff as well in the Today Show and on the John Chancellor Nightly News. And then when I was 11, he moved to ABC News and, 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 Anybody who was working at those places in the 70s and 80s would tell you, and they would be correct, that I was a huge pain in the ass. I mean, I was there all the time, <laughs> and I'm sure it was annoying. Like, why is Shap's kid here? Can't doesn't he have any friends? Doesn't he have anything better to do? Like, like shouldn't shouldn't Dick take him out to you know the park or something like that instead of having him you know, chained to his desk with a copy of the baseball encyclopedia, you know, again, there was no internet. So my father uh, used me, you know, it was, it was um, Dickensian, you know, it was like, go, go, go look this up, go look that up. I I was like, I was nine-year-old Bob Cratchit. Um, But I loved
0: it. But you loved it you definitely grew up entirely surrounded by it. And so it's sort of almost ingrained into your being. So how could you possibly do anything else? What was the first job that you got out of college?
1: My first job out of college. Um, it was it was a great job. I graduated in 1991. And it was, you know, I applied for a lot of newspaper jobs. I'd been a sports editor, a sports writer on my school paper. And I applied for a lot of newspaper jobs. And I'd had summer jobs in the newspaper industry, and I was a stringer uh, at Cornell, um, and it was, we were in a recession at that point, and newspapers were having a hard time, um, and, and this was before, of course, the advent of the internet, and I don't think I got any, I don't think I got any newspaper offers, but I got a job um, working for an old friend of my father's, a great editor uh, with a long history of time life named Steve Delman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're 21, you know, a one-year project doesn't seem like uh, it's short. It seems like that's a real job, you know, and it was a one-year project working. Technically, I think I was a Sports Illustrated employee, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't part of Sports Illustrated. We were doing these special projects for the International Edition of Time, these special advertising sections all about the 1992 Olympics, which was um, the Olympics are – uh, a, a preoccupation of mine, uh, or, or at least an interest, and, and always have been. And so, you know, it, it was very heady stuff. Um, uh, I remember my salary was $30,000. I, I, I thought I was Rockefeller. I had an office on like the 45th floor of the Time Life Magazine, of, of Time, Time Life Building, 1271 Avenue the Americas. And I went to work, you know, I graduated, I think on a Friday and I was at work on Monday. And, and, um, I got to write stories. I got to assign stories. I knew more about the Olympics than, you know, the people I was working with were experienced editors. Um, uh, they weren't all sports people. Mm -hmm. And, and we were also putting together the official souvenir program for the 92 games in Barcelona, which was four languages and a very complicated process. And I got to write stories for this. The best story about this though, is like, you know, they basically said, all right, you're the guy who's, uh, has to know like who are the athletes we should be profiling what are the stories we should be focusing on all that so one of the um one of my assignments <laughs> I'm getting very deep in the weeds here Liam so one of my what one do of my assignments do do? was coming up with you you can only have like three profiles in this official souvenir program
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was a big deal like who are we going to profile and the lead time I mean I think it was like You know, the games were at the end of July, beginning of August. I think this thing went to press in April, maybe, something like that. And so, you know, it's a long time before, so you had to pick sure things, the three surest things you could find. So the three athletes, I think it was me who picked them, um, were Felix Savone, the Cuban boxer, who would go on to win the gold medal, Gao Min, uh, a Chinese diver, who would go on to win the gold medal, and my third sure thing uh, was Dan O'Brien, uh, the American decathlete who of course no hided in the pole vault at the Olympic trials in New Orleans and wasn't even competing in Barcelona. Um, but by the time that happened in June, uh, the project was over and uh, you know, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't tar and feather me. Um, <laughs> So that, but there's you know, no such thing as a sure thing, right? It, 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 when the pole vault is involved anyway, that was the lesson of that experience. And, uh, but it was great. It was a great project. I was back living in the city, you know, where I grew up and, um, and it was fun. A- and I got to work with, um, you know, it was one of those things right at the time that I, I got to work in 91, I think the national folded like that week. Mm-hmm. And, I'd always dreamed of working at the National. And um, I'd spent a night there when I was in college. New life for the photo editor, closer to my dad's, and the Ford was running it. I spent a night, and you know, I, I don't remember what happened if I ended up applying or the writing was on the wall, whatever it was. But um, it folded, and the, the photo editor on our project had left the national. She was working for Neil, Regina Flanagan, and um, and I went to the Party they had when it folded, and I we ended up hiring several writers from the National to work on our projects because the paper had folded. And here I am, 21, and I'm you know working with these great writers. Um, it was it was it was a great experience. And so what happened was while I was there at um, working in the Time Life Building, mm-hmm. Han Warner, the you know parent company, decided I was going to start this 24-hour uh, cable news station, in New York. Uh, called New York One News you know one man band. and at that point I decided I wanted to be in TV and I was gonna you know I, I think I put together a tape and I was gonna send it out to small markets and that, that kind of thing the traditional way of starting and and while I was there um, you know at, at time they started New York One and uh, and I got hired uh, you know in the in the you know the entry-level position, which I think, I think we called it a news assistant. Mm -hmm. And it meant, you know, it meant basically being, basically being a cameraman. There were some editing duties, but mostly going to, going to uh, news events, crime scenes, political stuff, whatever it might be, covering all that and um, bringing the tapes back to the office Sometimes cutting it myself, sometimes handing it off to an editor. And then if the night was slow, I was on the night shift from like five to one, then I'd get to go to sports events and do sports stuff too.
0: What made you want to be on TV and pr- kind of prioritize that over being in sports media in of itself? Because it seems like with the amount of responsibility and kind of the things that you were doing for the Olympics that year, you definitely could have pivoted that into some kind of big time, you know, sports writer, sports editor position or something like that. But instead you ended up doing TV and doing. Well, you know,
1: I'm, I'm glad you think so. But that I don't think that was the case, actually, that, you know, it was um, it was hard you know, as I remember, it, it, maybe it was just me, it was hard finding jobs. I, and I hadn't been able to get a newspaper job the year before. I don't think it had gotten much better at that point. Um, uh, so I wanted to, you know, and, and I think in the back of my head, I always kind of wanted to be able to do what my dad, did, uh, mm-hmm. which was, you know, your day job, your, 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 um, you know, Five day a week or more than that, more seven day a week for him and 365 days a year. That job, your your primary focus was that TV job. And then, you know, the magazine stuff he did in his downtime, the Mm -hmm. books he wrote in his downtime. That seemed to be a great model um, going into business. If you could do it, uh, you know, I talked, I remember talking to Sports Illustrated about they have, you know, reporter positions at the magazine itself. And I remember, you know, interviewing for one. And maybe, you know, I guess this is what they say when they don't want to hire you. It's just like you're not, you don't want this job. <laughs> you know, you, you don't want this job. You, you, you not know. no, <laughs> <same
0: thing. laughs> They said no, but same thing.
1: They said you don't want this job. You know what you got to do for the last year. Um, it would be hard for you to kind of like now take a step back and do stuff that is not as exciting. And I and and there was something exciting about the idea of covering. You know, local news in New York too. And I thought at that point, you know, I don't have to be a sports guy and I love news too. And it was exciting. And, um, you know, there's a romance to it driving around the city. I mean, what you would do is, you know, I'd show up at work at five o'clock. Um, you get in your little um, crew car by yourself with one man bands in uh, the white Chevrolet Cavaliers that were parked on the other side of 42nd Street. And you'd go out all night, all night, you know, there were no cell phones back then, but you had a police scanner and you had a two-way radio back to the office. And, you know, you kind of just be out all night getting sent to one story after another, mm-hmm. rolling tape, and then and then come back. And then I got to do stuff in the locker rooms, as I said, when, when it was downtime, when there was downtime. And so, You'd see, if you were watching New York One Sports Show back in those days, 1992 to 1993, you would see my arm quite frequently (laughs) holding a mic, you'd see my hand anyway, holding a microphone in an athlete's face or a coach's face. Uh, Guys I remember who didn't like it, because when you were one-man band, you have to stand right in front of the person, you have to put on the light on top of the camera, and some guys don't like the light right in their face. Buck Showalter did not like that. I remember Derek Coleman did not like that. Um, But it was, you know, it was what you did. And then, you know, if I wanted to go do a story and be on TV, like a package, you know, as they call it on TV, you could do that on your own time. So I'd spend my off days going to, going around the city shooting stories about whatever, and they would put them on the air. Uh, It was crazy. And, uh, And it was a great learning experience.
0: Yeah, I mean the ability to—that's a lot of freedom to have, kind of as a, as a you know relatively low level position at a like a news station like that
1: as a news It's station. a it's a lot of freedom, and we were using these high eight cameras. And it was this—I think it was the first place where you know they had this automated system where you know the anchors would tape a lead in, and then you know they'd roll the piece, and then they roll the tag, and they they had this kind of automated—it um, was like an automat system of doing it, and and uh and I was very fortunate to work with some very generous and gifted people um taught me a lot and, and you learn a lot on your own you know who are still my friends today uh the main sports guys at the network at the at the station there were three on-air sports people um Kevin Garrity a great guy worked working business a long time Steve Cangellosi who's now the voice of the uh Red Bulls and the Devils, and Bud Mishkin, uh, who's known to all New Yorkers for the interview show that he did many years in New York. One.
0: Well, that's quite a loaded uh, crew to be working with there.
1: Yeah, no, it, it was great. It was great. It was, and, and you know, I, I, it was. Um, it was interesting too. I was thinking about um, you know, uh, you know, covering the mayoral race. Yeah, when I say covering, I wasn't. I wasn't really doing the journalism. I was going out asking questions and, and the, you know, the news director would give me a list of questions when I was covering the Dinkins Giuliani race, uh, you know, basically 90, I guess that was the fall of 93. Um, you know, and, you know, Rudy screaming at me, I'll never forget once for some question, you know, I asked him about, I think it had something to do with, I don't even remember, but he yelled at me and said, I'll answer that when your boss is, something about Sid David uh, I don't remember David anyway my point is I got to you know I was there when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time uh, I remember being there later that night I wasn't working there that that was a morning story I remember when Colin Ferguson shot and killed all those people on the Long Island Railroad I think I was one of the first media people on the scene covering that um, it was it was crazy it was an education
0: yeah that's a lot of uh, you know for the a lot of the other people that i've interviewed for this series usually are pretty much like are sticking to the sports side of things, but you have a lot of experience in a lot of different uh, areas early on in your career. so how did you go from covering stuff like that to by two thousand to two thousand and three kind of really becoming known for your sports media reporting
1: well well, what happened um while I was in New York one um, I started doing some freelance work for NBC I think It was NBC Sports who I'd worked for in Barcelona in the research room for like five or six weeks, something like that, and I'd started doing some freelance producing for ESPN. And um, what happened was um, the guy who was running the Olympics at CBS back then, the production side of the Olympics, one of the great figures in, in sports broadcasting, was Mike Pearl. And I wanted to work in Lillehammer in 94, those Olympics. I, I loved doing the Olympics. I'd been in Albertville and in Barcelona in 92. And um, you know, I had a contact through Pearl. And I, what he said basically was, I don't know if I have a job for you, but call my assistant every week. You know, so, like, right. I think a year and a half, I called every week. No news, no news, no news, no news. And then finally, I called one day. And... Um, and she said, oh, we have some news. Um, uh, um, the gentleman who was supposed to write the primetime studio show, Lillehammer, has left the sports division. So what ha- it's a long story, but basically what happened was, you know, there's a big story in sports media uh, at the time. Um, CBS lost the NFL to Fox. And that was right before the Lillehammer Olympics. And so you know, the writing was kind of on the wall that CBS Sports was going to get smaller. Yes. So people were leaving, or, or some people were, I should say. And among those was was the writer, one of the writers, who, um, and I think he went to the news division, which made sense. So all of a sudden, they needed somebody to be, you know, write copy for the host, who was Greg, Cum- Greg Gumbel. Um, and so they said, why don't you come in for a tryout? It was like sports. I forget what they called it. It wasn't Sports Spectacular. It was like CBS Sports Saturday, CBS Sports Sunday. And Andrea Joyce was hosting. And Bob Monsbach was the producer. Mm-hmm. And I went in and it's intimidating. I'm 23 or just turned 24. And, uh, but I had experience writing for TV from New York One. And also I'd done some of ESPN as a freelancer. And, you know, my background, to the extent I had a background, was, was in print and uh so he said write the show which means you know writing the leads and writing this copy and writing these little pieces and, and I, I think bob ended up writing everything i don't think <laughs> i really got to write anything he just took control and wrote everything and andrew was great and and they said you're hired i'm like i didn't <laughs> I, think I said that i just took the job and so i'll never forget they offered me cbs the tiffany network they offered me i think the, the lawyer called me uh, Who like did the negotiations for CBS Sports? And he said, "Jeremy, I know we don't have a lot of money to offer you. Uh, I hope you're not insulted by this, but you know we're going to need you in Littlehammer for like five weeks. I would have paid them." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "And I'm making eighteen thousand five hundred dollars in New York one a year." He said, "We're going to give you ten thousand dollars for the month. Is that is that okay?" I'm like, I'm like, oh my god!" It's like, this is like, this is like winning a lotto. And so, uh, and I said, okay. And they say, the only thing is they said, we need you to go to Little Hummer like tomorrow. Like it was literally like tomorrow. So, uh, so I went into New York one night and I quit my job. I had been getting enough freelance work where I thought I could make it work. And then I, you know, I just was going to see where it took me. So I got back from Little Hummer and I, I had a great experience in Little Hummer working for CBS, great people, Genteel and Pearl, um, and, um, and and I came back and I was freelancing for them as a writer, for NBC as a writer. I remember doing the 94 World Speed Skating Championships. Tom Hammond was our host. I was the writer. Jim Bell was the producer. Um, and I did stuff for them, CBS, and then ESPN. And then after a few months, ESPN made me a full-time offer as a producer based in New York. And that's what I did for the next couple of years.
0: Now I have to earn my salary, so stay tuned for more press pass after this.
1: Just to take a quick
0: pivot. So obviously, just throughout your career, Olympics and kind of international events have really been a huge, huge part of what you've been doing from basically from day one. So I mean, talk a little bit about just why you love all that just so much. Food. Kind of
1: mostly food. Uh, well, naturally. Uh, well, wine, wine plays a role as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved to travel. I've always loved, uh, you know, the the excitement of that the romance, the history of it. Um, you know, if, if I don't get to go to another country every few months, you know, my, 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 I start to itch. Um, I, and I think a lot of it is, you know, my, again, you know, it goes back to my father who, um, covered all those Olympic games and was, you know, an internationalist in, 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 sports media, um, you know, some of my earliest memories are my parents, you know, going to the Montreal Olympics and, and he's being in Sarajevo. He was one of maybe a half dozen American journalists who covered the Moscow games in 1980. And, and so what could be more fun, more exciting, you know, I had friends in college who were from, uh, overseas and, yeah, I just I just loved it every opportunity. And so, you know, NBC in that period where I was freelancing, I got to work the French Open for them in '94, um, which is a great event. It was a great event. Like, you know, we were there in Paris for like three weeks, uh, having these great meals, and you know, staying in a nice place. Uh, and you're only on the air like six days. It was like, you know, it, it was. It was a lot of fun, and um, I got to do Wimbledon for them later. I, I just always loved, you know, I, I loved the soccer, World Cup stuff. I loved the Olympic stuff, and um, it took me to a lot of places over the years. I was very lucky.
0: A wide variety of places on top of all that. Great food and great wine, as you said. yes. Yes. So moving a little bit back to our uh, timeline here. So you were producing for ESPN for a couple of years and right around 2000 is when you uh, secured perhaps one of your more well-known pieces of interview work, which was the interview with Bob Knight. So kind of yes. take us through what, that, what happened there for you. I mean, that seems like really like the first big, big moment for Jeremy Schaap.
1: No doubt. Um, and at that point, I'd been on the air at ESPN for four years. I'd become a reporter in 96. What happened was, and I, I, <laughs> um, in 96, my producer contract was up and I decided at that point, look, if you're gonna do it, you wanna be on air, now is the time to do it. Um, and so I was, I was you know, prepared to leave and I thought at one point I probably was leaving. CNNSI was starting up and I had been, made an offer um, um, by Steve Robinson and Jim Walton and Gene McCormick to go there. And then ESPN, what happened was, again, it has to do with Fox. Um, Pam Oliver got hired at Fox. Pam had been an ESPN reporter, and she'd been based in Houston. And the Cowboys had just won their third Super Bowl in four years. And Pam left. So now they needed somebody in Texas, basically to be there to cover the Cowboys on an almost daily basis. And so there was an opening, and that's how I got hired and sent to Dallas. I was in Dallas for a couple of years, went back to New York in '98. And then in 2000, um, yeah, the Bob Knight interview, um, it was crazy. It was really a crazy thing. I, I guess I just turned 31 and I'll never forget the date of September 12th, 2000. Um, uh, it's an easy date to remember, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, but at the time uh, it was significant to me because one of my closest friends, it's like a brother to me, uh. Amazing colleague, person, Willie Weinbaum. It was his 40th birthday. And when the interview got scheduled, I realized I was going to miss Willie's 40th birthday party. And it really, I was, I, I was, I was more concerned about disappointing uh, Willie and his wife, Joy, than, than I was worried about Bob Knight. It actually gave me something else to focus on. Um, true story. And anyway, what happened was I was up in Madison, Wisconsin, doing a story. I don't remember the exact timeline whenever the press conference was called where it looked like Bob was going to get fired because he had um, put his hands on an undergraduate, Kent Harvey, who uh, Bob thought had disrespected him by saying, I think it was something like, hey, night." It's, it's a long story. Mm-hmm. But whatever it was, I was the closest reporter to the scene in Bloomington and, because I was in Madison. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget this. Um, There was going to be a press conference, an assembly hall, and we needed somebody there, obviously. And I was, they figured out, you know, if I flew commercial from Madison, it would take X number of hours. Any other way, I wasn't going to get there in time. Nobody else was going to get there in time. And so it's the only time it's ever happened. I've been at ESPN 27 years. Uh, They chartered a private plane for me to get to Bloomington. right. So, so I'm sitting in, what is it called? The Riverview Hotel or something in Madison. Um, the producer I'm working with, John Fish and Mary Sadenaga, the two producers I was working with at that point. And they say, go. And I say, all right. Say, they say, well, we're going to have to get a private plane, you know, to get you there in time. I'm like, wow, that's cool. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. I think i bid on a private plane at that point, maybe once. No, maybe never. I don't know. It's only, and and they said, um, just go to the airport. The plane will be fueling up by the time you get there. I mean, it's kind of like a James Bond thing, right? Exactly. press Prescom. And it was, and they had to get approval from Bob Iger's office. Uh, And at the time, he wasn't the uh, CEO. He was the number two. But they had to go, you know, to approve a private plane. That was a thing. And they did. And I got there, and it was this beautiful French jet, I think. I think they're called Falcons, and it was like 47 minutes. Touch take off to touchdown. Beautiful. And I go to the press conference, cover the press conference. I see Bob, I think I saw Pat Knight as well. And um, nothing happens, they don't fire him. So they say, Go back to Madison.
0: Commercial this time?
1: Oh, it's better than that. So, you know, Bloomington. Um, so the next day, I had to take a bus from Bloomington to Indianapolis. You know, I don't think I could even get a cab. So I took, like a, I, I really think, maybe I'm imagining it now, but I think I took a bus from Bloomington to Indianapolis and then flew Indianapolis to Detroit, Detroit to Madison, <laughs> made it back in time for the game that I was covering. And then the whole thing blew up again, like mm-hmm. later that day. And I got a phone call saying, you might be interviewing Bob I think I got a phone call saying, you might be interviewing Bob Knight from David Brofsky, who was my boss at the time. And he was choosing among, he had, been, he had been given this option of sitting down with me, Bob Lee, or Dan Patrick. I think that was the choice he was presented. And Digger Phelps had negotiated, as I recall, the fact that Bob was doing it at all, doing it at all was um, because of his relationship with Digger. And Bob chose me. And that's, uh, and so then, then we did the interview. And it was crazy. It was crazy. The whole situation was crazy.
0: Do you know why he chose you?
1: Yeah. I mean, Bob chose me because, well, we knew each other. Um, We had, he'd been, um, he was a good friend of my dad's. um, And he thought that he would just be able to steamroll me. I mean, you know, I would have thought I could steamroll me. Um, And, you know, and I think in his mind, he thought he was doing me a favor as well. Um, and he was doing my father a favor. I think that was part of, it. um, but I also, you know, it, <laughs> it was, it was so strangely because right. I, I, I've been doing this a long time and I've never had an experience. I'm not sure how many experiences there have been at ESPN like this because mm-hmm. it seems strange to say, right. But this is the pre 9-11 world. And, um, it was still possible to imagine at that point, not even imagine it, the firing of Bob Knight was the biggest story in the country at the time. It was, it was, you know, it w- he was the guy, everybody wanted to talk to. And I was going to do this. And he's a famously ornery guy. We all know that. <laughs> Cantankerous at the best of times.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: this was not going to be one of those standard big newsmaker interviews because he insists on doing it live. So it's just a totally different dynamic. Anybody who does this, you know, for a living will tell you there's no safety net, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's and Bob is a very bright and obviously a very aggressive and a very um, um, determined advocate for himself. And so I knew this was going to be a formidable, if not daunting challenge. And, uh, It was interesting. It was, you know, everybody was paying attention. I knew everybody would be. And um, that kind of energy, excitement, doing something when you know everybody's watching and you know that it matters and (laughs) you basically trained your whole life for this moment. It sounds ridiculous because it's just an interview, right? But that's how it felt.
0: I mean, how else is it going to feel? It's the biggest thing that you've gotten. And, you know, at, at that point you've been in the industry for a decade. I mean, Hard not to feel, uh, feel like the moment is big. And looking back in retrospect, it certainly seems like it was as big as it was.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was. And I mean, to me, you know, and it was, it was also, it was, like, it was like taking part in an event rather than covering it because the interview itself became an event. I mean, we, we found this location like, I don't know, 20 miles from Bloomington. The producer I was working with, artist, found this place and it was off campus, you know, Bob couldn't do it on campus and wanted to be away from the crowds. And, um, and, you know, other media entities were covering the interview. There were like satellite trucks and microwave trucks there, maybe not microwave, from other entities covering the interview as a news event itself, you know, and there were state troopers there. And, you know, the whole thing, um, felt very high stakes. And, Ultimately, I don't know, I think maybe it was 35 minutes of airtime, something like that. And um, afterwards, I got a lot of pats on the back. Mm -hmm. I got, um, you know, my profile was raised and there were some very nice things, flattering uh, things written about the way I conducted myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was great. I mean, you know, it was just, it was really, it was a moment that was really, really great. And, um, you know, for me, and I think for most people in the business, you, you know, you do this for those kinds of moments when everybody's paying attention to what you're doing and you have a chance to uh, prove your capabilities. And And, um, they don't come along very often, those opportunities
0: so it's still waiting for another one (laughs) all these years later still waiting (laughs) well you absolutely proved your capabilities in that interview and so then how did things change for you after that
1: that's a good question I'm not sure they did I mean except you know it's it's not like it was you know it's not like I don't know. I don't think I started getting any more high profile assignments. I mean, I was doing stuff that I considered high profile at the time. Anyway, I was on TV a lot back then in those days when, you know, there was a smaller group of people who appeared on ESPN's shows and platforms. Um, and and I was doing a lot, but I, I think it, I think it elevated me in terms of, um, you know, the way I was perceived among my colleagues and people counterparts at, at other outlets. And, um, and look, it's, it's, it's 20 years later, right? And it's just an interview. And, and yet I don't go more than a few days without hearing about it. And we spent together. And, and Bob, you know, I mean, I got to thank Bob for doing it. And, um, you know, and then Bob ended up working at ESPN <laughs> for a number of years. And we have the same agent, Sandy Montag. So life is, life is strange.
0: Life is definitely very strange. Anyway, so pretty much, I mean, uh, just to fast forward a little bit here, uh, Anya. So one of your big things that you've done at ESPN over the years is that you were one of the original contributors to E60. And so just from your perspective as one of those, you know, OG guys over there, I mean, how did you view E60 as the project when it was first being ideated? And, you know, how impressed are you all these years later that it's still going strong?
1: Look, getting to work on E60 um, for the last 13, 14 years, whatever it is now, has been the best thing I've gotten to do in my career. You know, know, the show, um, which was conceived by John Skipper and Bob Wallace and John Walsh and Andy Tennant, you know, um, it it was about uh, the things that it has remained about. Um, journalism and profiles and an international perspective on things, which we've talked about, which appeals to me. Um, and, and um, a cinematic sensibility to storytelling. And, and I have to say, um, you know, the, the most, um, the things I'm most uh, grateful for about working on is working with, you know, incredibly talented producers and camera operators, directors of photography, uh, editors. I mean, I thought we were doing um, doing it well, doing it very well when we started. And it's become so much more polished and so much more sophisticated. Uh, it, it really is a testament to the talents of, of the whole crew. And, and the important stories, I mean, you got to remember, Liam, um, you know, I grew up, as we talked about, my father worked in network news and he worked in, you know, one of the golden ages of network news at NBC News and ABC News, where you got to travel the world and cover important stories. And he worked, you know, in, in some capacity as well at times in ABC sports, when they really did span the globe and cover those kinds of stories. And, but by 2007, when we started doing what we were doing at E 60, um, you know, th- there weren't many places that were committed to these long in-depth stories. You know, they they don't seem necessarily like, you know, this is not about, these were not ratings grabs, right? You know, the stories that I did about, um, the touch on human rights all over the world, on social justice issues all over the world, whether it was about, um, you know, the, the miserable conditions uh, in which, um, the migrant laborers in the Persian Gulf work and live, or the legacy of the Union Carbide Industrial Disaster in Bhopal, or corrective rape in South Africa. These are, these are stories that mattered to me, and matter to my colleagues, and um, that we felt, you know, that we were privileged to be able to tell, to go out and, and do these kinds of stories, which are expensive and time consuming. Um, and we've done it for so long. I mean, I, you know, I often think about this. It, it, it sounds, it um, sounds like I'm just being a company man or something, but if you could have chosen somewhere in media as a young person entering the business to go to work at in 1993 and the opportunities that would be presented and the, you know, I don't think you, I don't think you could have done better than ESPN. Right. I mean, the kinds of stuff that I've gotten to do, um, just by dint of, of working at ESPN um, and the projects that we've gotten to do. Now, you know, we, all those years, all these years working on e 60, especially the years when I kind of wasn't doing um, OTL stuff as much. I was really concentrating on E 60 and, you know, covering the Olympics and the World Cup and some other stuff. And you're not on TV as much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got to be comfortable with that. You know, you're not going to be as present as I was when I was young, when I was on Center every show. And, and you're making a choice doing uh, you know, important stuff, volume, uh, at a high volume, which is you know, more the day-to-day, which drives the engine, or doing these long, uh, involved, um, journalistic pieces. And, and you know, um, for me, that was a great trade-off.
0: Be right back with more gold after a word from our sponsors. Absolutely. And like you said, the human rights issues and things of that nature have always been really important to you in your reporting, because even before E60 was originally started, you know, 13, 14 years ago, like you said, you already had broken a couple stories like that. There was the uh, University of Georgia uh, misconduct going on there, and the uh, high school in Florida where a racial epithet was used. And so, I mean, like you said, this stuff has always been really important to you, and a lot of it came from your dad. But as just to, from where you were in those like early days, those late nineties, early two thousands, like what was really driving you to try to uncover those stories?
1: I just, I just, you know, I, I guess, um, that's what journalism is about, right? You want to make an impact. You want to, um, you want to tell the stories of, um, the disenfranchised, um, you know, where you see, injustice and unfairness, you want to expose it, and hopefully that, that leads to some kind of change. Um, it, 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 I, you know, I think that's what drives a lot of people, right, in, in mm-hmm. journalism, clearly. And you know, one of the stories I think about where um, we tried to make an impact, and I think we did, and this, is, this predates E60 as well, this was an outside the line story, um, I did with the aforementioned Willie Weinbaum who turned 40 on the day of the Bob Knight interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, He spent a long time over the course of several years doing stories, at least, well, at least two long long stories and then some updates on Willie Mays Akins, which at the time it was a story about, you know, it was a world series hero who um, his life had spiraled out of control because of drugs. And ended up sentenced a very long federal prison sentence, and his story illustrated the unfairness of the disparities in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine and uh, we went to the federal penitentiary uh, in Atlanta to interview him. I, I, you know it's so hard to remember after all these years I, I think we went twice once we interviewed him on camera, once we just got to talk to him, once I interviewed him on the phone from there you know and, and it was a story and an issue that would become bigger subsequently, and, you know, has been addressed now um, with, uh, with, with um, you know, it, it's one of the, the stories that I think, you know, kind of gave people perspective on the unfairness of those disparities and um, the impact, the disparate impact uh, in terms of race as well. And... Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, I was never, you know, I grew up, I didn't want to be a play by play guy. Mm. I didn't want to be a sports center anchor. I didn't, you know, I I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to tell important stories if I could. And and stories that, that change people's lives um, for the better, that, that uncover um, injustice and, and, you know, when you get the opportunity to tell those stories and they intersect with sports in some way, we do it.
0: You got to take that opportunity, right? Exactly. And so now at this point in your career, you're doing a lot of what you're just talking about. You're telling important stories for outside the lines. A lot of the daily segments and outside the lines especially has gone through a lot of changes over the last five, 10 years. So as the guy who's currently pretty much in charge of outside the lines, how do you view your responsibility with that project?
1: Well, uh, certainly, uh, if, if any of the producers working on the show um, <laughs> hear me take credit for being in charge, they'll laugh because yeah. I've never been in charge of anything. Um, look, the, the I, I think... The I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it's... I think um, the work we do is more important than ever. I think the stories we cover are more important than ever. Um, you know, we... <laughs> during the pandemic, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have not been doing our weekly Saturday show. We've been doing segments instead Monday through Friday on uh Sports center. And I host them, Ryan Smith posts them. And over the course of the last nine months now, I think we've, we've covered so many important stories. There, there are so many serious stories of course, now to cover and, you know, Starting with the pandemic itself and the ramifications for sports and the consequences of, of, of athletes taking part in sports now or of stadiums having spectators in them. Um, um, and then, you know, after George Floyd was killed uh, by the police in Minneapolis in May, covering the racial justice movement at that moment in time. Um, everything that's gone on in the last 10 months, I mean, you know. It's sports, but it transcends sports. And, um, and it's been, you know, I, I think the show, um, everybody involved with the show has been doing their best work mm-hmm. uh, for the last 10 months. And, and the stakes are higher than ever. And the stories are more consequential than ever. And, uh, you know, we're, we're coming back with the Saturday show um, sometime in the first quarter of next year. Um, you know, there was a, there was a, a very reasonable, I think, um, effort to minimize uh, the number of people who were going into the studios in Bristol. And we're, and we're going to be back uh, with the show, which I'm looking forward to as well. But I think um, what we've been doing on a daily basis, you know, we've been doing more serious, consequential journalism than ever before. And, and I think, I think uh, Outside the Lines, the show I've been working on for 27 years, 27 of its 30 years, uh, is more relevant than ever.
0: Definitely, and so like you said, right now the journalism has never been more important and it's also, you know, now things are a little bit easier but over the last couple months, it's never been harder to do all that work so as we slowly hopefully start to exit this pandemic things start getting back to normal again what are your and the producers hopes for what outside the lines can become in the next year to two years and just like in the you know that kind of time span
1: i think you know i I don't think of it in terms of what it can become i think of it in terms of what it has been Mm -hmm. what it can continue to be and it you know, in terms of, like, how particular segments look or devices or the look or the feel, the, kind of those creative elements, um, that's not my bailiwick. You know, I think about the stories and the tone. And I think about, um, you know, as Bob used to say, Bob Lee, um, whom I speak to only about, you know, or communicate with only about 20 times a day, um, you know, you put, the people, you put the people in the chair and you ask them the questions. and and that's what we do, and and, and it's um, it's about addressing um, these issues that touch on sports, sometimes only tangentially, that intersect with sports, and and telling the larger story of um, society at large. And and going, it's been it's been very weird though. You know, the last ten months, I go down to my basement uh, three or four times a week to do these segments. And, you know, I set up the camera and, um, you know, we have conference calls and Zooms like the rest of the world, but not being in the building. I've only been in the building seven times since March up in Bristol. Uh, you know, it's, it's not as good for the product. The, the, the interaction with your, with your colleagues, that imp- it's, it's better, but I understand. Uh, we all understand why we can't be together that way now. Um, but I, I, I think we're excited um, to be back doing the one hour presentation um, when we can, when it's safe.
0: Absolutely. And then we are just talking about, you know, kind of looking back on this year and how hard it's been. And so one of the most recent projects that you're doing with ESPN is called 2020 Heroes, History and Hope. So kind of what can you tell us about that and sort of what you guys want to accomplish with this particular project?
1: Yeah, this is um, this is uh, a big undertaking um, for our group. Uh, and it's going to be a three-hour uh, three hour presentation, three one hour standalone shows, but all presented together uh, for the first time on Christmas Eve from eight to 11 Eastern time. And then uh, I think each of the one hour shows will kind of um, air repeatedly uh, ad nauseum. Uh, <laughs> Story way putting it over the course of the next few weeks, subsequent weeks, and, and it's you know people love year in review shows. Uh, people don't love 2020 for obvious reasons. Uh, none of us um, you know, this has been uh, a traumatic year in so many ways, um, and so this is going to be in some ways um, a look back in the you know, in the tradition of a a typical year review show, but it's also a look forward and it's built around storytelling and, and um, meaningful stories that uh, just been um, so well reported and produced. And I think it's going to be really stunning. And Lisa Salters and I, uh, as we host E60 together, are hosting this special together. And we're going to have essays from on so many of the, Different things that touched our lives in 2020. I think the show is going to be uh, um, really special.
0: Yeah, it's going to be, a, I'm sure it's going to be very enjoyable to watch and perhaps very sad. That's what I'm the buying. There,
1: there will be sad, but, it, it, you know, I, I have friends, let, let's face it, say it, who tell me, like, I can't watch E60, it's too mm-hmm. sad. There are too many sad stories. I, and I get it, right? Totally. Um, and, and, and I do some of those stories, and, and Tom does some of those stories, and Chris does some of those stories, and Lisa does some of those stories. But um, this, this is, you know, you can't celebrate 2020, right? It's too awful to celebrate. But I think um, there are things that inspire us from it and going forward.
0: Definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And so, Jeremy... Looking back on your career, especially over the last 20 years, you have done some really important and outstanding work, and we talked a lot about the human rights violations and all that stuff that you wrote about, and just all sorts of different, very well-reported, very great journalistic pieces. But is there one in particular that stands out to you for any reason at all, when you look back upon your career and all the stuff that you've done and the various awards that you've received as a result?
1: Yes. Um... I suppose it's a bad sign, Liam, that, that there's not that much competition in my mind.
0: Or um, a good sign, kind of depends
1: on right? <laughs> um, no, it really is the story that we did um, at, at E60 on uh, Qatar in the 2022 20, World Cup and the awarding of the 2022 World Cup to Qatar, and um, which focused on um, the plight of the migrant laborers there, most of them from, from South Asia. Treated so badly, um, building uh, the infrastructure that makes bringing a World Cup to this small country possible. That was a story uh, that we worked on for a long time. And I think it was, uh, I think it was um, powerfully told and conceived, uh, producer being Gim, um, uh, producer Oversell Project, Michael Baltierra, uh just completely committed to it. Our crews, um, they're out there. Um, Tim Horgan, who edited it. And, and that was a story that was, what, five or six years ago now that I think made an impact, openized, uh, you know, really gave people something to think about that was important, that they hadn't considered before, that, you know, uh, what the consequences were what the human toll was of this event. And um, I think that story, um, which won uh, an RFK award, um, that's probably the story that, uh, in a sense, we're most proud of, I think, at the show, or at least I am.
0: Definitely. And then on a little bit of a lighter note, you have interviewed many, many, many people over the years for all sorts of stuff. And so kind of when you look back upon all those different interviews, is there any particular one that stands out where you're just like, damn, that was a great person to talk to. That was a great interview.
1: Well, those are two different things. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, as you know, those are two different things. Look, look, there's um there's one moment, you know, in the way that the Bob Knight interview was. Singular for me. um, There was a moment a few years after that, five years after that, doing a story about Bobby Fischer in uh, in Iceland. And that story, which is a story that uh, resonated to and uh, struck an emotional chord with a lot of people, including me. And it was a story about one of the great, arguably the greatest chess player ever, and what became of him after he won the championship in seventy two, and how how this this fairy tale soured, and it was very personal as well because of his relationship with my father and we had this confrontation in Iceland uh, at a hotel um, at the downtown airport and it was uh it was almost it 's almost like an out of body experience it was it was so bizarre and uh, personal and unexpected for me um, and, and the story that we told uh, um, after that, uh, the producer John Fish, who I mentioned before, was with me at night. Um, executives in charge of that uh, uh, Craig Lazarus and Glenn Jacobs and Andy Tennant. Um, that story, Robin Footlick, like that, that story still, I think, resonates for a lot of people. And I think about it a lot. And um, that was weird, but that, you know. That was the strange confrontation. It wasn't even a sit-down interview. It was a press conference. The guy I've interviewed the most and uh, over the years is Mike Tyson. And, we've had, um, and he's the guy, uh, in many ways, who I find most interesting when I talk to. And uh, we just did, a, I think, a one-hour show, basically, just kind of a, uh, an anthology, if you will, of my interviews with Mike over the years. And there are dozens of them. And he continues to fascinate. And he fascinates me.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine what it would be like talking to him over the course of his entire transformation as a person. to who
1: is like amazing. Now. an amazing story.
0: Remarkable stuff. Now, a very important question, as you are a man of international taste. What's, oh the, what's your favorite country that you visited?
1: Oh. <laughs> so <hard>. so, <laughs> so, so let, me, let me tell you, I, I am – I am a Francophile. Uh, I, I love being in France. I love the cuisine. But, you know, do I have to choose France over Italy? I mean, I had some meals. I was in Vienna a few years ago um, working on um, the FIFA show that we did. Uh, the UEFA Congress was taking place. So I got to spend like six days in Vienna. I'd never been. is amazing. It's gorgeous. I mean, I'm not telling people, you know, it's not a big state secret. Vienna's amazing. <laughs> Vienna was amazing. The food was amazing. You know, the best assignment I've had. Yep. Uh, in some ways, has been getting to do the Tour de France. So the Tour de France is, you know, this, um, well, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from, um, from a reformed sports writer, Mr. Hemingway, uh, really was like a movable feast. I mean, like every day you're in another beautiful setting of you know, some incredible restaurant, and you're in these places that you wouldn't typically go to as a tourist in France, you know, and it's, it's, you know, two weeks on the road driving through the countryside and stopping in, you know, the medium sized cities, and ending up in Paris, the Tour de France is amazing, and French cuisine is amazing, and the scenery is spectacular, and the event was also exciting, um, you know, it it was all about Lance in those days, um, love being in france um i'm an english history buff so whenever i get a chance to go to london i take it um and so i I love i love immersing myself in the museums and the landmarks and all of that stuff when when i travel and um euros in 1916 were amazing too because you know we were based in paris for a month traveled all over france and, and bob was hosting lee and we got to you know we had some very uh you know fun days traveling throughout the city walking seeing the sites um trying to one-up each other with our knowledge of european history and, and, and you know, i've just been so lucky to to get to do all these things you know um but there's, I mean, I went to Thailand uh, for a heartbreaking story about children fighters um, a number of years ago. Um, and I spent a few days in Bangkok uh, at the beginning of the trip. And I mean, that's some of the best food in the world, too. I mean, Bangkok's fascinating. And the, the, if you like, you know, Thai food, obviously, that's, uh, that goes without saying, Bangkok's spectacular. Um, I've seen so many great places. I love Norway. I've been in Norway several times. I have friends from Norway. um, Scandinavian countries. And the Shaps are from the Netherlands, where I haven't been in a long, long time. But uh, when I get a chance, in fact, last year I was supposed to go. This is probably too much information. But I was supposed to go on a business trip to Rotterdam, where I'd never been. um, And I was looking forward to it. I haven't been in Holland in a long time. And I got, like, diureticulitis the day before the trip, and I couldn't go. You do not want diureticulitis, Leon.
0: I don't believe uh, I do. You don't want it, hydrate. I definitely don't want it before I get to go to Europe either.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, had to, that was, I don't know why I brought that up, but I, I couldn't help myself.
0: Well, that was my fault, really. I mean, I asked you the question that eventually liked it. <laughs> the Although, to the right? this.
1: <laughs> I, I can go on. If there's one trip where, I mean, it was great in terms of the food and Cultural stuff in just an incredible setting, San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, which is a city that's always like at the top of the list of places you have to visit. I, I, I was very lucky a few years ago. I got to go there with one of the best producers in the company, Mike Johns, and a um, good friend of mine, Joe Monaco, shooter out of Miami. We did a Tony Gonzalez profile. Tony was there for like a month and we got to spend some time with him. A few days in San Miguel de Allende, not bad.
0: Not too shabby. Yeah. I can only imagine. Now, for the final two questions that we usually end our press pass oh, with, okay. with. Number one uh, What's something about your job in this industry that you feel like other people don't really get or they might not understand?
1: Wow, that's a good one. Um, I don't understand. I don't know. What do people get or don't understand? I think, I think probably just because like nobody gets what anybody else does. Right? Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what a doctor does. I don't know what a school teacher, the preparation, mm-hmm. you know, the way that you have to prepare to do your job in terms of, you know, the homework you do, you know, you might be on TV for two minutes as I often am, you know, beyond that they start telling me to rap. Um, <laughs> You know, it, but the amount of preparation you have to do to know, to know, um, you know, just in case something else comes up. So you want you to speak confidently and knowledgeably about something. As you know, you know, you have to have the base. You have to know what you're talking about. If you don't, people can tell. And so you need to do the preparation. You need to do the homework. The other thing is, I think, the art of interviewing. Which to me is something I could talk about for a long time. And I'm not saying that I have any standing to do so. But uh, when I'm asked about it, what makes an interview powerful, revelatory, what makes it good versus what makes it bad, and how you conduct it, and how it really is, I think, an art form.
0: Mm-hmm. Most certainly. And then finally, last but certainly not least, if there was any one thing that you wish you could have known about this industry when you were coming out of college as a fresh faced 21 year old, what would it be? Hmm.
1: Well, I guess, you know, I, I guess I could have, you know, when I did it, when when I was starting the business, you know, it was kind of idea, you know, like if you went in newspapers, you stayed, you thought you were staying in newspapers. I mean, I guess I could have taken a newspaper job and 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 ended up, you know, like like Will Bonner, Kornheiser, you know, he wouldn't have had to, you know, spend all those nights lugging a camera and a tripod around New York. You know? It could have just been a notepad and a, and a pen. Um, it, it there's so many things I guess I wish I could have known, but because and I I, I hope. I, my bosses aren't listening. I feel like I have the best job in the company. I really do. Um, I wouldn't want anything to be different. So you know, you don't want that effect. If if you'd known something, maybe you would have made a different choice. And um, I guess this is uh, this is a cop out, but um, <laughs> but I like what I get to do. And so um, maybe if I'd known something else, it would have been detrimental um, to my career rather than beneficial because I like, I like where I am. See,
0: I don't see that as a cop out because you were the first person I have ever, ever heard say that. Not to say sure. that everybody else I have interviewed isn't happy with their position, but you were the first person to be like, you know, if I would have known something, it may not have made have altered my route through this, through this path. So. Wow.
1: All right. All right well, I, I right get on. some points for at least original thinking. I, <laughs> I appreciate
0: that. Exactly. I'll send you a plaque. in the mail. <laughs> Well, all thank right you. of course jeremy thank you so much for coming on i felt it was a really great conversation i really enjoyed chatting with you and i appreciate your honest honesty and straightforwardness throughout
1: it's really it's really been my pleasure in any time you want to spend an hour talking about me i'm here i'm it's here for pleasure. you
0: that's <laughs> the best part about this podcast we're <laughs> always talking about other people in this industry we never get to talk about us so i'm glad i gave you a platform to do just that
1: well when when my my podcast is supposed to launch soon we'll give you an opportunity all
0: right I'll, i look forward to that Thank so and thank you listener as always for tuning into the big leads press pass podcast. I am your host Lee McEwen signing off.